Uh, amen. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. Today we're going to be in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2. So if you want to go ahead and flip there, turn or tap your way to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to start there and reference it several times, but we're going to be all over the place. Maybe better to just write down some of the references as we go. I think you're going to have a hard time keeping up with me, but... Let's, uh, let's just start with the text. Let's start with the scripture and then we'll work our way out from there. But 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, First of all then, I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. It's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Okay, well, um, I don't like doing uh, sermons just based on like what's in the headlines. I know you're supposed to do that. Uh, but it's really frustrating when you have to do that because the stuff in the headlines is just so awful or shaking and, and altering. Earthquakes, COVID, the stuff that's going on right now. The kind of injustice, the kind of radical brokenness, the kind of fear. Um, I hate when I have to preach and I have to address stuff like that because it's just, it would be insincere not to. I'd much rather just keep talking about the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. But one of the things that's so cool is that the text that I have for today, it wasn't really built around some sort of current event. It wasn't built around a specific brokenness in the world. It was built around the next thing we were talking about. But because God's good, because his word is his word, he knows the end from the beginning. Yeah, I think, it, I think it fits well with the things that we need to be thinking about. Right now, as a church, I'm, I'm trying to um, turn up the volume, accelerate the speed. We had to break for a little while and we had to do church differently for like 10 weeks, now like 12 weeks. But, okay, you know, things are opening up. Things are going again. I want to get things moving. I want to push people towards accelerating. Okay, we can't get back together yet in the ways that we think we could. Okay. But that doesn't mean that the kingdom of God has stopped. That doesn't mean that the things we're believing and called to and passionate about just, like, go away. we got to keep pushing. And so we had this... This idea for going pro, the idea that we're going to try and take what we're doing and turn it up, take it to the next level. Last week we talked about the scriptures and hearing from God. This week I wanted us to talk about what comes next, which is speaking back to him, thinking about prayer. And it fits really well, I think, with what's going on in the world because I think most of us feel a great deal of helplessness. See the stuff that's going on? And the first thing I think we do is we feel so terrible for the people 
that are directly involved. And then you start to kind of understand the shockwave, how this is our whole life, this is our world. Then uh, you want to do something. All right, let's, let's, let's fix it. Let's do something to change it. And, and what is that? What does that look like? I mean, you, you can fix things in your own life or work on them, but how do you change a, a society, something that's systemic? How do you change something that emerges and its head comes up out of the water and it's just disgusting? But here we are. We're just these individuals. And as a leader at Hope Church, I'm looking at you and I'm thinking about our group as a church. How do we get out there and change it realistically? Everything doesn't have to just be super practical, but I want it to be. I want to have something I can do. And what we have in this text in 1 Timothy is we have the Apostle Paul, but he's saying to Timothy, and really this is Holy Spirit speaking to the church, urging us, first of all, to pray. And the way that this text holds together is he's saying you're praying for all people, and you're praying specifically for those that are kings and in high positions that we can get about our business. And what is our business? Well, the last verse says, it's pleasing the sight of God our Savior, who desires that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That God's answer for the world is that we would get put back into this knowledge of the truth. And again, you're wondering, just pull that out of the Bible. You don't really know what it's saying necessarily. But of course, when Paul is talking about the things that he talks about, as you read the New Testament and understand what kinds of things he considers he's preaching about. He's talking about how God does save people. His desire is that all people be saved, and he's talking about the knowledge of how we come to be saved. What he's doing is he is saying every place that the world is broken, from the most graphic to the most common, it all comes back to one thing. That the God that we serve, the God that is holy, his heartbeat is constantly trying to bring about that one thing. And how does he teach us to get about that one thing? Well, first of all, pray. Boy, if, if that seems um, like an anticlimax, I think it's because you don't understand prayer. Let's try to fix that. When Jesus speaks about prayer, he says in Matthew 6, this is a very um, uh, popular part of Scripture, something maybe you've heard even if you're not a Christian or haven't been around the church very much, but it's called the Lord's Prayer. Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, and he says, first of all then, pray like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's saying to our Father... Glory be to your name, and then his immediate requests are that God's kingdom would come. 
that His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, that there would be a reuniting of the way things are done by God and in His presence with the broken and, and kind of awful way that we do things down here. He is praying for and teaching us to pray for the kind of kingdom work we're supposed to be doing. I think you can think when I say pray that you just do what Christians do. Then I'm going to preach a whole sermon about how you're supposed to pray before you eat. And there's all kinds of funny little things that people pray before they eat, and it's just a way of just clicking that box. Okay, we prayed and now we can eat. These are the things that Christians do. They pray in the morning, they pray in the evening. They pray before they eat, they pray before some big thing that's going to happen. They pray when they're in trouble and they pray when they're really happy, but it's generally just these sort of form prayers. Is that what we're talking about? I don't have a problem with prayer in any way, shape, or form. If it leads you to what prayer is really. Because what prayer is really is just like any kind of speaking that, that's really worth hearing. It's the kind of speaking that bubbles up and flows out of a true place. Oh, hypocrisy, lies, the kind of... Um, flattering tongue that you see in the world. That's not what we want. When you really speak and you're speaking out of the overflow of your heart of who you are, God is teaching us to pray to Him and praying to Him out of the overflow of our desire for His kingdom to come. What we mean by that is that people would actually come to know the truth, meaning that people would actually come to know how they can be put back together with God, that God is the number one thing that they need, that they're separated from Him, and that there's a way that they can be put back together with Him. And that as his people, it would be our heartbeat, as it is his heartbeat, that all people would come to a knowledge of the truth. So we say, going pro. It's the name of our little series. And if you think about you going pro in other ways, let's say you're going to go pro in basketball. You're going to become a professional basketball player. It's not going to happen. You're welcome. I'll just take that away from you, your anxiety about whether or not you're going to become a professional basketball player. You're not. God bless you. But even if you did, the game of basketball just doesn't really need you. Game of basketball is going to be totally fine whether or not you ever get in there and try and mix it up and give them your version of whatever. But, and this is crazy, the kingdom of God, which is infinitely more important than basketball, does actually change whether or not you're involved. God is actually looking to and depending on, and this is insane, you to do something to bring about his kingdom. God's totally sovereign. He's sovereign over all things. It says he knows how many hairs are on your head. And we can go from that and think about all the different ways God's sovereign. It means that he knows the number and the trajectory of every leap of every flea on the planet. He's God. And he even determines it. He knows exactly what he's doing. We prayed through Job, and Job finishes with this grand sort of explosion of poetry about how in control God is over all things. And yet, in the middle of probably what is the most 
difficult passage in Scripture, helping us understand how God is in complete control over everything, even over the response that mankind has to Him. In the middle of those chapters, we get Romans 10, which says, how are people going to call on God if they've never believed? How are they going to believe in Him if they've never heard of Him? And how are they going to hear without somebody speaking? And how are we going to speak unless we're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I am saying that Scripture is saying it is legitimately dependent on you for people to be saved. <laughs> That's insane. You think about the concept of delegation. How good are you at delegating? And we got kids in here. We're not doing kids ministry right now. How good are you at delegating to your kids? My kids are so young that it would not be realistic for me or Rachel to just say to them, like, yeah, just go fix whatever you want for lunch. Well, see you in a while and just delegate that task to them. If we did, we would walk into the kitchen and dollops of peanut butter would drip from the ceiling and there would be insane sort of combinations of ham and mayonnaise and jelly and like all kinds of weird stuff because they're not really adequate for that task. Delegating it to them is not really their fault. The wife says to her husband, yeah, you pick out what I'm wearing. It's going to be a great wedding either way. You pick, I'm sure it'll work. And then if you come out looking like an idiot, whose fault is it? You shouldn't have delegated that task to somebody who didn't really have the equipment to take care of it. Is it not insane then that God has delegated to us some measure of responsibility for the task of taking the gospel to the world? How, how are we going to do it? Oh my gosh, we have so much we have to do. Every person you've ever seen is in uh, eternal concern. They're a person who is going to not stop existing. That means that the sheer number of people, the sheer variety of people, and the sheer length of people, all sort of, I wish we had time to kind of dig into each of these pieces, demands our concern, our, our understanding of the just magnitude of the task that's set before us. How are we going to do it? Well... We pray. First, we pray because we need him if we're going to do it. In the book of Acts, this is the first place where really, and you have some times where Jesus sends his disciples out to preach, but this is the first time really where he sent his people out to go and to make disciples of all nations. The book of Acts is right after Jesus' ministry, his death and burial, but then his resurrection and ascension and his, his boys, his, his disciples and all the people that are around him now are going out to preach his gospel and see people come to know him. And of course, as things go well, there's also persecution. There's also difficulty. There's also this coming down on and crushing of the church. Acts 4, they pray. And they pray and they remember God's bigness and his goodness. They remember how, how much more in control he is than the enemies that are encircling them. They remember and they pray through Psalm 2. Gosh, 
if your concern is with the government and their oppression, please memorize Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Why do the rulers collect themselves, take counsel together against the Lord and is against his anointed? It talks in that psalm about how he's going to dash them into pieces with a rod of iron. How they better kiss the sun lest he become angry. And the people of God in this part of the book of Acts, as they're getting together and they're looking at the enemies arrayed on every side, they begin to remember and to think about how big God is and how small their enemies are really. And they pray and they plead with God to work in them and then to work through them. And it says in chapter 4, verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken. And they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. They then continue to speak the word of God with boldness. When they pray, they're filled with boldness. Gosh, it really takes boldness to talk about big, hard stuff with people who you probably are correct in thinking, don't really want to talk to you about it. I don't know how often you've attempted the the exercise of evangelism, of, of sharing the hope that's within you, but it's often a pretty difficult thing, a little bit awkward and even kind of an odd thing. It takes a lot of boldness to get up and actually try to do it, but then to even do it with power. To be, to be speaking to somebody and not have it sound like just sort of this thing that you are into and maybe they could be if they wanted to. No. You're God's messenger. And you're speaking the eternal world's words of salvation that come from him through Christ, through you, to them. To speak with power. It doesn't mean you yell, but it means you speak with conviction. And to speak continually to continue in this effort. I mean, it's clear that these people, as they prayed, are filled with the Holy Spirit, and then they continue. They continue despite the persecution. They continue despite their just absolute lack of any kind of um, wealth, any kind of like um, social power. It's a church movement from below up. They just Continue. Can I tell you, as pastor of the church, one of the biggest things that we are always trying to make sure of is that we just get you across the finish line. We just want you to continue. The scripture's clear. I mean, if you're his, you're always going to be his. He doesn't lose his people. He's a good shepherd. But we're always looking into you and saying, okay, is this person really a follower? Is this person really a believer? Um, you know, you're kind of wondering, you're nervous, you're pushing, you're hoping, you're, you're trying to shepherd this person and see them continue in the faith until they get to that finish line. How does it happen? It happens that as we pray, he fills us with his spirit and then we go. We need him to do it and we need him to do it. Here's what I mean by that. What we are trying to build, what we're trying to see happen is not one conversation away from happening. Yes, we need to be constant. Yes, we need to speak the gospel. But what we are hoping for and praying for and pleading with God to bring about is nothing less than the total remake of the world. We're expecting, we're planning, we're praying for God to take and deliver his church, to restore his church, to put his people and his name back where it needs to be. And in fact, that's the story of all of the scripture. There's a super smart guy named Jonathan Edwards. He's been dead. He's 
from the 1700s. But he was in New England. He was the first president of Princeton, I believe, or one of. And he's just this super genius guy who knew the scriptures backward and forward. He had the kind of brain that could keep a lot of information in it. And he was somebody who used that gigantic brain to study and understand scripture. And this is what he said. He said, if we look through the whole Bible and observe all the examples of prayer that we find recorded. We want to pray. How are we supposed to pray? What are the things that we should be praying? Well, what in the whole Bible is the number one thing that people have been praying for? We shall not find so many prayers for any other mercy as, this is the number one thing, the deliverance, restoration, prosperity of the church and the advancement of God's glory and kingdom of grace in the world. As we pray for that, we join with saints throughout all the ages in praying for the day when God will make all things better. If you ever try and actually just sort of wade your way through the Old Testament, you're going to run into giant patches that get really hairy. What I mean by that is they can get difficult to understand, difficult to kind of wade through and see what's being said. There's the law stuff where you understand what's being said, and that's kind of the scary part. But then there's also these just gigantic chapters of prophecy. It's super difficult to know what's being said and why it's being said. Well, the fact that God's people are always praying in this one sort of note, in this one massive prayer for the deliverance of his people, the restoration of his people, helps to sew all of this together. Here's my example. In the book of Ezekiel, in the Old Testament, it's a very difficult book to get through unless you can understand something of what's happening. Well, what's happening is that God's people are pleading with him because they're deported. They're not where they're supposed to be. They, he, they're pleading with him to make things right again. And this is what God says. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I'll cause the cities to be inhabited. The waste places are going to be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled. Instead of being a desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by, they're going to say, this land was desolate, but it's become like the Garden of Eden. The waste and the desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I've rebuilt the ruined places, replanted that which was so desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken I will do it. Wow. Beautiful promise. How do we see it happen? Why is prayer so important? Well, look at verse 37. It says, Thus says the Lord, This also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock. God has determined that he is going to bless them but he's also determined that he's going to bless them as they pray for him to bless them. He has ordained not only where they're going to land, this wonderful blessing of the way that the people of Israel are going to be restored, but he's also ordained the way that they're going to get there. If you're a good dad, when you plan vacation, you don't just pick a place to go. You also figure out how you're going to get there. You try and con some kind of credit card company to get miles so that you can get a flight maybe or you plan a really detailed route through the drive of this place and then maybe we can stop here and a good hotel is there and maybe even you start figuring out restaurants along the way because you don't just want to eat at McDonald's every stop. So you ordain not only where you're going but the means of how to get there. God has done precisely that. 
It's settled. We know who's going to win. We know where we're going. We know what's coming. But we also know that he has ordained the way in which we're going to get there. And can I tell you that it's prayer. He has designed the route through prayer, through constant, regular, passionate pleading with him to work. Is that what your life currently looks like? And all God's people said, well, of course not. Okay, it shouldn't. It should be filled with that kind of prayer, that kind of regular, passionate begging of God to build his kingdom, to fix this world. It's clearly broken. He can clearly fix it. Will he? Well, it's up to us to beg him too. The last couple of sermons, I'm trying to finish with a couple of different points that all start with the same letter so you can remember. I'm learning to preach finally. The ways in which you're going to pray, we're going to use three Ps here. We're going to pray with people, persistence, and passion. Pray with people, you can't be with people right now. Yes, you can. You totally can. You can totally be with people over Zoom. You can go out to a park somewhere. You can go up to a mountain and park your cars right next to each other and scream through the windshield. You can get two other people if you choose to. Will you choose to in order to pray together? You should. God's designed his people to work better together. Somehow, one plus one in the people of God equals three. Your prayers encourage me to pray. And my prayers in response to your prayers further encourage you to pray. Somehow, we speed each other up without any kind of friction or loss. It's the way it's supposed to be. The best part of Rachel and I's community group is the prayers. It's not necessarily so unbelievably lovely to hear them pray, even though it's nice. It's mostly that, and I don't know why, somebody in our group has this direct line to God, and a lot of the prayers that we've been praying recently have just been answered. I could go through the list. There's been several. And there's part of me and Rachel is like, uh, have this tactic, the, this kind of devious idea that we're going to not tell some of the people the prayers and see whose prayers are working. Because really it would be better. Do we just send them to that person? They pray and then we all get the answer. You know? But there's something about people praying together. It's God. He's ordained the means. He wants us to do that. That's what we're going to do. We pray with people. We pray with persistence. This is crazy. Isaiah 62 says, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I've set watchmen. All the day, all the night, they shall never be silent. He's talking about prayer. And I know that he's talking about prayer because of these next verses. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. And give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Do you see what I just said? This is the Bible from God, this is God's Word, telling us to not stop praying, not to take rest, but to continue in our prayer, and to give God no rest, to just keep tapping on His shoulder until He answers. I don't know how much um, a child should be eating. I have a calorie counter because I you know, balloon out if I'm not careful, and I have to try and track my own calories, but I don't know how many... Uh, calories a kid should be eating, and yet my children, especially in this little um, quarantine time, are drowning in snacks because they just keep asking. And eventually, you say, yes, 
I don't know how many goldfish a four-year-old can physically eat, but they just keep getting goldfish because on the 46th time that they ask, you eventually just go, whatever. Do you understand that in Isaiah, God is commanding us to pray with that kind of persistence? In the New Testament, Jesus talks about an unjust judge who will give justice to a widow, not because he cares about justice, but just to shut her up. And of course God loves us, and of course God's a good judge. And yet, he is giving those as the models for us in the way that we are supposed to be praying to him, praying with persistence that we would wear God out with our prayers. Why? Well, it's that third P. As we pray, then we start to gain that passion. There are things that you know that are true in your head that they haven't really landed yet in your heart. If they had, your life would be totally different. Your enthusiasms would be totally different. Your loves would be totally different. How do you go about changing those loves? I think Scripture is very clear. As you pray, your heart's going to warm Your heart's going to start to ignite with God's priorities and his goals. You're going to start to have the passion that he has. See, the passion that Christ had for us led him to suffer and to die for us. The passion that will be required if you are going to see people come to know Christ It's going to involve that level of sacrifice. I promise that as Jesus taught it when he said, take up your cross and follow me. How are you going to have the kind of love? Your heart is so small and so hard. How are you going to be filled with the kind of passion that's going to lead you to that kind of just self-forgetful, incredible suffering that it's going to take to see people come to know Christ? As you pray and as you put yourself into Christ's position, as you remember what he's done for you, as you stare at the cross where Jesus, who was perfectly pure, had no reason to do this other than his love, shed his blood to see you come back to God. You study it. You see it. Your heart grows warm towards it. And you begin to plead with God to work through you in some way similar so that the people that you know and the people that you love will come to know Jesus. So, let us now pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, teach your people to pray. Please fill us with the desire to pray. Teach us by starting just with where we're anxious, Lord, that we bring our anxieties to you Even people that don't know you, Father, they can just pray to you if you're there. And I pray that the the slow and the repetitive and then eventually the persistent and the passionate praying of your people will lead to the massive changes that are necessary in our world. I pray that we would become an instrument. We would become a highway through which you bless and change this world. We pray this in no less than the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray.